Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Back when humans were living in communal caves and tribal encampments, we told stories about the stars, even though we didn't know what they were. When we started sailing, we used these same pinpricks of light to estimate our own location. When we began planting, we counted on the sun's position and the appearance and disappearance of certain constellations to remember when to plant and harvest our crops. Now, we tell stories about ourselves, and we use advanced tools to navigate. For the most part, someone else does the planting for us, and seasonal changes are marked by back-to-school sales and spring cleaning. While we arguably understand ourselves and the planet better than we did long ago, we've mostly lost our connection to the cosmos and to our planet. Welcome, you guys. I have just read part of the introduction to a new book called Astronomical Mindfulness, your cosmic guide to reconnecting with the sun, moon, stars, and planet. Today, I am bringing you an interview with one of the authors, Sarah Scholes, and we are going to talk about why staring at the sky matters, how it's a mindfulness practice, and how it can change the way you relate with your day-to-day mundane minutia, right, that we experience. I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. It feels so timely. We just recently completed a Meditation and the Moon series. We've just been talking a lot about placing ourselves in space and time, about finding ways to feel connected. And this conversation was so much fun. I know you're going to be able to hear my excitement. I was like a little kid (laughs) asking all the questions. And you know, this conversation fits so nicely with my upcoming Elemental Awakening program. They are both focused on practices, on explorations that you can do in support of deepening your meditation practice, but they're also outside of your meditation practice. It's creating the space to explore mindfulness from multiple angles and allowing each angle to broaden and deepen the understanding of the whole. Elemental Awakening only has six spots left, and registration ends on Tuesday, March 15th. Don't forget, I timed this offering to be accessible for my UK and my EU listeners, as well as folks in the United States. Learn more by visiting the link in the show notes. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Sarah as much as I did. Let's listen in. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to talk about your new book. It's coming at such a fun time. Welcome. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. So we are talking about your new book, Astronomical Mindfulness, that you co-wrote with an author that actually I think is in my hometown. Chris teaches at Agnes Scott, yes? Yes, that's correct. I didn't realize you were there. Yeah, so that's my hometown. Chris is an astronomy professor, and you are a science writer, correct? Yes, that's right. So tell us a little bit about how this book came to be. Sure. Well, I guess it starts back at Agnes Scott College, where I was Chris's student about, um, let's see if I could do the math, about 14 years ago. Amazing. His uh, astronomy major student. And, you know, he has taught astronomy at all college levels for a long time and has done a lot of labs where where students get to observe um, the night sky with telescopes and with their eyes and then with the public. And I think over the course of doing that, he's seen how paying attention to the sky and having a cosmic perspective can kind of change the way that people think about their place on earth. And, you know, I was one of that those people that that changed for. And so when he came to me with this idea of like, let's take some of these exercises that we do and then relate them back to mindfulness, I was like, that's that's a great combination and I would like to be a part of it. I think that's amazing. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me as I was reading the book was how simple the exercises were. You know, at first glance, I was like, oh, it's this looks like maybe there's math involved. I don't know. But then in all actuality, you could literally do them like I did them seated on my back deck, just me and the book. And I had no mathematical genius next to me to help me. <laughs> and for listeners who are likely engaged in a meditation practice, it's such a fun experience to explore mindfulness in ways that aren't a seated meditation practice necessarily. So often we're seated with our eyes closed, we're likely indoors, and to take our practice outside and open up our eyes and place us in time and space is really a powerful experience. So I wonder if you have some thoughts just about what astronomical mindfulness is as it relates to how we move through the world. Sure. I think of, um, and I should say I'm not, you know, a mindfulness expert by any means, but I think of it as, as very related to, you know, paying attention to where you are and what you're experiencing at any given present moment and paying attention to that. And I think, like you said, a lot of times that's, you know, related to your body or the environment and your mind. And we kind of think of astronomical mindfulness as expanding that to also include the present that is the whole, you know, billions of light years extra of space all around you that is also part of our environment and our present and that we kind of neglect. And so I think the exercises, at least, we hope that they kind of remind you that the Earth, whose deck you're sitting on, is a planet with other planets in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the universe. And so kind of just incorporating that all into your conception of what the present means. What is it meant for you to place earth in space in the solar system, right? To identify where we are. What what has that done for you and your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I've been kind of obsessed with space since I was a really little kid. I grew up really close to Kennedy Space Center. And so I was always watching shuttle launches, like from my backyard, they would set off our like little burglar alarms when they (laughs) landed and stuff. So space has always kind of like been a part of my conception of things. And I think as I grew older um, and started studying astronomy, like 
very occasionally I would just step back and be like, wow, this, this place is a planet and we are in space. And um, I think for a little while, especially when I was kind of like an existential teenager, that made me kind of sad about our very tiny place in the universe. But now I think it seems very special to be a part of that, um, even if it's a small part. And so I think gaining that perspective that astronomers uh, they don't talk about it necessarily from a mindfulness perspective, but they just call it a cosmic perspective that like time is long, the universe is really big and you get to be a part of it kind of puts puts it all into place, you know? Yeah. I shared in a previous episode, so listeners will be familiar, but earlier in the pandemic, I'm very much a morning person. I go to bed early. I wake up early. But earlier in the pandemic and just a, you know, one of the exhaustive moments when we've been home, the kids are being the kids. It was at night I had gotten the kids to bed and I was like, I I have to get out of this house. And I stepped out for a walk at night, which I never, ever do. And it completely changed my experience of evening, I suppose. Like there was this whole experience that I was not aware of because I never stepped outside at night. And from that one walk came this whole practice of a couple times a week, I take a walk at night and I almost always now step out on my back deck at night, just like for 10 seconds, even as I'm locking up the house at night, just step outside. And then I had these other conversations with friends and colleagues who said the same thing. And none of us were identifying it as a specific practice. It was just like this weird thing we did and never talked about, like, why do I step outside for 10 minutes and stare at the sky? And now you have this entire book that really gives some practice to that. Why would, you know, why are we called to do that? And what I love is in your introduction, you really talk about this shift from originally our cultures were telling stories about stars and now we're really telling stories about ourselves and that feels like a huge shift so i i wonder if you can talk a little bit about why paying attention to the stars why these stories feel so poignant right now yeah it's interesting you know we started working on writing this book kind of right before the pandemic started and so it, it seems like it's become even more relevant for exactly the reasons that you say. But I think, you know, we as humans have always paid attention to the stars. Like like you said, that thousands of years ago, probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, like that was what was there to pay attention to at night. And humans use stars to navigate, to know when to plant crops for a spiritual practice, for marking time. And we you know, in part because of city lights and because we're busy and we're in our apartments and houses, we don't really pay attention to that anymore. But I think there's something very fundamentally human about just, you know, the sky is half of what we see on any given day and we just don't pay attention to it. But it's kind of a a vector, I guess, for being able to ask and think about big questions like, where did we come from? What does it mean that we're here? And kind of a repository for stories. And especially during the pandemic, I think as a way to mark time, like, you know, we all get caught up in our day to day, especially in the early days when everyone was just 
home and everything was the same all the time and everything passed quickly, but at the same time, extremely slowly. And there was just none of the normal markers that we have. And I think, you know, stepping out to notice, oh, the phase of the moon changed or like the sun is setting in a slightly different spot could be a way to just kind of notice the passage of time in a way that's connected to the rest of the universe. One of my favorite things about the book is at the end of each section, you include a story or an interview with an indigenous astronomer from different cultures and just relate our sort of modern experience with more traditional experience or or experience that has gone on uninterrupted for eons. And um, I'm curious if any of those in particular jump out at you as powerful. Yeah, I think the one I've been thinking a lot about lately is um, a man named Willie Barreno, who um, had grown up in in Guatemala during a time of of conflict, and also a time when he was kind of estranged from the culture that he came from, which was the the Maya culture. And, um, you know, the contributions of the Maya at the time were not very appreciated within the country. And so he said that he uh, grew up wishing that he was an Egyptian because he thought that Egyptians did all the cool stuff. And it was only as he grew up later that he started to learn more about all of the astronomy that Maya astronomers did and all of the structures they had made before there were telescopes or anything for observing the universe and just kind of connecting with his own past and relating it to the present. And he he went on to create a school for um, kids to learn more about that culture also. And I think a lot of the indigenous and native stories in the book are like that. People who didn't realize what their um, predecessors had contributed or the interest that they had in the sky and reconnecting both with that and with the astronomy itself at the same time. There's such powerful examples of you know, this reminder that the stars and the moon are just, they're always there. And it's, I love that you highlight how much you can do regardless of where you are, whether you live in an apartment, in the middle of a city with a ton of light pollution, whether you're someplace out in nature, I have a very vivid memory of being a kid and some of my family lived out on Long Island in like this tiny little town with no light pollution, it seemed, because I remember seeing the night sky and my mind being blown. Like, why did they have so many stars and we don't have that many stars? (laughs) But then you get to carry that knowledge, like, actually, we do have that many stars, right? 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 We can do these practices even if we're not in Sag Harbor, New York. So how do we do these in our backyard? Right, right. I think... I mean, yeah, most people live in places where you can only see a few dozen stars at most, especially in the U.S. where people are concentrated in cities, but the sun, the moon, and the planets are visible from almost anywhere. And I think there's kind of a simplicity in being able to appreciate what you can see. And then, you know, when you have the chance to go out to Long Island or if you go on a camping trip and you can see more stars, like taking, I think it's interesting to take the knowledge that, you know, the sun that you see every day is a star and then you go out camping and see a lot more and you can think all of those are a sun essentially and that most of them uh, almost all of them also have planets solar systems you know maybe life we don't know and it's just very overwhelming to look at it that way but i think grounding yourself in the astronomy that's close by of the solar system can help you appreciate the stuff 
that's farther away. And all of that is accessible from an apartment balcony in the middle of a city. And it's such a powerful mind exercise to do this dance between here I am in an apartment in the middle of a busy city and I have my stack of bills and my laundry and the car needs gas before I get to work. And at the same time, in the same breath, I am like this little moat of dust in this massive universe. And there's something about the both and of that that feels really like life-giving is what I think of, right? Like it's energizing in a way. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, thinking that all the stars are suns doesn't solve anyone's problems. It doesn't make the bills easier to pay. And knowing that you're a speck in the universe doesn't make the electric company not come after those bills, but it does provide a bit of a a break and a respite from, from thinking about them, I think. And you can be small in the universe and your problems and joys can be important because they're important to you, I think. And just, yeah. One thing that I I don't know if I would qualify this as mindful or not, but like a philosophical thing that I like to think about sometimes when I'm getting very neurotic about something that's going on is 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang happened, the universe started expanding. And these billions of years later, like what I'm worried about is what someone else thinks of me because human brains evolved to be like that. And then it just gives me the perspective, like, actually, that's kind of ridiculous and funny. And then it doesn't solve anything, but it just takes my mind out of its track for a second, I think. Yeah. It, you know, it interrupts that narrative that is so I focused, so me focused, and it gives us this more cosmic perspective, right? And it goes back to exactly what you said about this idea of a shifting from a culture that told stories about stars to a culture that tells stories about self, you just modeled that so beautifully, I think. And and some of these exercises, man, I mean, the most simple one, and it like, literally, I was like, hey, worth every penny, because I just learned something really important. I'm totally calling myself out for all the listeners. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out the direction I am moving in at any given time. And for my whole life, I'm like, my mind is blown when people say, are you going east or west on 285? And I'm like, I have no idea which, unless there's a sign that says, I don't know. And in the book, the first exercise is how do you figure out the directions based on where Mm -hmm. you're standing? So that was my favorite. What was your favorite exercise to put in the book? Um, Yeah, I am also bad with directions, by the way. And for the comfort of the listeners, also bad with constellations, to be honest. So I think this, (laughs) if I can write this book, you could, you can do these exercises. Um, My favorite is actually a pretty simple one too. um, And it, all you need for it is an empty toilet paper roll, which hopefully we all have plenty of these days. And you take it, just go outside any night and uh, point it at the sky and see how many things are within your field of view. You can do that for like five different spots in the sky. And this is a little bit of math, I guess, but take an average of how how many things on average are within that toilet paper roll view. And it turns out if you could point that thing at the sky 250 times, you would have covered the whole thing, but that takes a long time. So if you just take your average and multiply it by 250, you know how many stars are in the sky where you are right now. 
which wow. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and if you're in a sky filled with stars, uh, it's impossible to count. I used to try when I was a kid and I would always lose count or lose my place and you can never do it. And then if there are not a lot of stars, you know, it can be hard to, to find them, but it's kind of a way of connecting you to the specific place where you are. Cause that number is going to be different every, every single place that you are. And so you can see what's there or what you lack and see how it changes depending on where you are. Just, you know, always carry a toilet paper roll, I guess is the lesson. I love that. And I say, you know, every parent probably saves every single empty toilet paper roll because of all the school projects that Mm -hmm. need them. So it's a handy tool. (laughs) Science fair and art both at once. Both at once. Perfect. Mm -hmm. I love that. And you also do some interesting exercises that gives such a unique perspective on time, like tracking the planet's movement across the space that you look up every night or the phases of the moon, which listeners just did with me as we meditated in the last month or so. Talk to me a little bit about using the sky as a metric of time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that, I mean, that is a practice that goes very far back in human history. You know, we haven't had clocks for very long clocks or paper calendars that you can stick on the wall. And so tracking the changes, both of the stars throughout the year and the planets on a shorter time scale and the moon over the course of a modern month or so was, was the way that humans kept time for a long time. So I think that it connects us back to that. And um, what's interesting to me about it is, you know, there are some psychological studies that suggest that, you know, time seems to pass faster when you're not doing or noticing new things. You're just kind of in your routine and you just kind of fly through it and everything seems like a a blur, but every day out there, you know, the planets are in a different place. The moon is in a different phase. The sun is setting in a different spot. And if you can just take a moment to, to notice how those things change over the days, the seasons, it's kind of like a, I think of it as like a signpost that you could say, ah, oh, this is this is different. I'm I'm noticing something new and about my environment and kind of slowing life down, which I I don't know about you, but I'm mostly always trying to slow life down a little bit. Yes. <laughs> always. One of the things that I learned, I never took an astronomy class in college, so I know nothing about the sky. And one of the things I learned was that. I guess I always assumed that all constellations were visible at all times. Like I didn't realize in the winter you see certain constellations and in the sun, which seems ridiculous once you figure it out and say it out loud. But I had never stopped to think about it, right? I just assumed I would look up and I would always see Orion's belt. And right now at this moment in time, when I look up, I do see Orion's belt. And it's been fun to give some context to what we're seeing in the same way that, you know, we sit down to meditate. It's not like we're having new thoughts. We're just having the same thoughts that we have while we're doing dishes and while we're cooking dinner or driving to work. But when we engage with them differently, all of a sudden, all this awareness opens up. And I'm finding the exact same experience happens when we simply notice in a different way, right? It's not just like, oh, it's a pretty night sky. But, oh, how interesting. It's winter. I'm facing south and there's Orion's belt. And in June, 
I don't think I'm going to see that. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something different, right? That's such an interesting way to relate to where we are in the world. It's not just simply, that's a pretty sky. And it's not that I have to be some sort of genius to know all the constellations. You know, your book is a very easy read. Oh, it's very easy. It's, you know, I sat down and I was able to like go through a couple chapters and do a couple of the exercises. All of them feel like exercises I could step outside and do with my kids. All mm-hmm. of them. They're like completely accessible. And it just, I don't know, it's brought something really lovely into my evening. Oh, Thank that's, you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I think you are far from alone in you know not not knowing that orion uh, where orion would be when i think that's very normal there are tons of things i don't know and i think everybody comes to stuff with you know their own background and their own knowledge and astronomers expect everyone to know lots of astronomy but people know lots of different things but um yeah i i like to think that reading the book and maybe having a little bit of understanding of why orion might disappear during a certain season and you know it's because of the way that earth is moving through space and around the sun and where they are in relation to each other like if if you're thinking about why orion is gone or why orion is there you're kind of forced almost to think about the the orientation of of stuff in the sky which forces in a in a nice way hopefully (laughs) you think about uh earth as a planet in space and all the you know random events throughout cosmic history that have led us here Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think about and talk about often is a very famous quote from Carl Sagan about being made of star stuff. And when he says that, he follows it with, we are a way for the universe to know itself. And every time I read that or hear that, I think also that what he's saying is the inverse, that the universe is a way for us to know ourselves, right? Because when we're thinking about the rotation of the earth, when we're thinking about our placement in the solar system or what's happening above us, I don't think there's a way to disassociate that from where we are as an individual in that moment, right? It's it's a both and an outer and an inner happening in the exact same moment. Yeah. And um, I also think to expand on that a bit, I kind of find a uh, comfort and find it compelling that if we are away for the universe to know itself and vice versa, like there are probably also things that are beyond our comprehension out there. Like if we came from the universe in some way, it's probably impossible for us to totally know it. I don't know. I like that. That's, uh, I think it's both a little bit spiritual and scientific because, you know, science is all about mysteries and trying to solve them and that there are just some mysteries that we probably will never solve, which I, I like, I guess. I love that too, so much. I think the mystery is what makes life so fun, right? Is that we get to explore that and engage with it in all these different ways. And for some of us seated meditation practice and for some of us staring at the sky or painting or, you know, there's just a myriad of ways to engage with that mystery. I think it's pretty powerful. I'm curious what you said that you, you know, have been interested in space since you were a kid. Um, Did you study astronomy in college or was that just a one-off class? What, what was that path like for you? Yeah, I did study astronomy in college. I started out wanting to be an astronaut just because I grew up next to, I mean, every kid wants to be an astronaut and I grew up next to a bunch of them. So that was my path. And then I remember when I was 
eight or nine or something, we had the Encarta 95 Encyclopedia CD-ROM. And I was just reading about <laughs> all the different branches of astronomy. And I was like, oh, actually, I want to, I don't want to just go to space. I want to know more about these things that are out there. And I just, I don't know, I think I'm probably pretty stubborn. So I was just like, this is what I like, and I'm going to keep doing it. And so I progressed uh, and went to college in that. And I actually became fascinated with a branch of astronomy called radio astronomy, which is instead of using telescopes to get the sort of light that you can see, you're collecting radio waves that come from uh, distant space and turning them into things human senses can make sense of. And I was particularly fascinated with the idea that just like all around us all the time are these waves that we can't detect with with our own sensory systems at all, but they're there and they're coming from the universe and and humans trying to know that universe have developed these instruments that that let us pick up on these invisible parts of the universe kind of just blew my little mind. Um, and so that's that's what I studied. And that is what my co-author, Chris Dupree, that is his specialty also. He studies um, star formation, baby stars being born using radio waves. Wow. And you have an exercise in the book. I have not done this one, I'll be honest. Um, but you have an exercise in the book, right? Using like a little transmitter radio right to hear sounds is that right yeah oh yeah the kind of little radios that everybody used to have around their houses and nobody needs to anymore but if you turn on just a regular fmam radio you can actually pick up well you'll hear static if it's not tuned to a station as as we all know and some small part of that static is actually the leftover heat from the big bang from the beginning of the universe that is just kind of all around us all the time and we have no idea, but your radio knows. And so is picking up on some of that. So yeah, when I'm having my uh, intrusive thoughts or whatever, I could just, you know, you could turn on a radio and be like, well, that's from the Big Bang. Maybe I could take a second and think about that instead of whatever I'm thinking about. I need all the head explosion emojis right now. Like sometimes (laughs) I wish I could just like make emojis happen in real life because Thinking about residual heat from the Big Bang happening at this very second that we are talking is insane. Like that is an amazing thing to even begin to reflect on. I just, my mouth wants to hang open. That's crazy. I know it's, it's so cool that it sounds very fake, but I promise it's true. That is Mm -hmm. so cool. And it's, you know, uh, maybe even in that exact same chapter that that exercise is, you talk about that the universe is continually expanding, right? The Big Bang happened mm-hmm. and all of this matter, I guess you would call it matter, is expanding out and continuing to expand out and continuing to expand out even in the second. And in a more minute way, when we think about being present, being mindful, and we're asked to be in this moment, it's also this sort of ever-expanding moment of now, right? Like now is not a finite point. It's an ever-expanding point. And so engaging that sense of expansion in this moment that you and I are speaking, as well as thinking about that happening at this very second all around us, again, it's just mind-blowing. It is. Yeah. I mean, things like that also help me think about the universe and the sky as things that are dynamic and changing. Um, When you look up at the sky and you see those stars, like they essentially look on their own the same from night to night, like a point of light is a point of light. But 
thinking about the universe expanding makes me think about, you know, the fact that those are stars that are, you know, their atoms are fusing together. They're like sending off big bursts of plasma, like all this stuff is going on out there all the time. It's not just a static thing and everything is changing just like it is on earth all the time. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Mind explosion. Everything's changing all the time. (laughs) Is there anything that you particularly love in this book that I didn't already call out and obsess over? Well, I think some of the things that are both the, the simplest to do and the most cool, I think, are um, some of the, the things in the book that are actually events that take place in the universe, like meteor showers or lunar and solar eclipses, just actually related to this theme of changing, that there are things that happen in the sky, not just something to look at. And so in, in the book, we have a list, I think, of of upcoming meteor showers and places and times that you can go see different eclipses. And those are just they're, uh, they're powerful, I think, uh, indications of, you know, orienting yourself in space. When we see a meteor shower, we're going through the debris left over from a comet swirling around the solar system um, and pieces that are falling toward Earth, which is wild. Um, and lunar and solar eclipses are when the sun, the Earth, and the moon kind of line up and cast shadows on each other, which is, you know, a thing that happens on Earth, but much more powerfully when it's the the shadow of Earth or the moon. And so if you want to have your mind blown, I would say that that those sorts of events are are good things to check out. You know, I remember the last total eclipse, which was several years ago at this point, there was a podcast episode from Radiolab, which is one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And they had this recording. It was like a montage of people reacting to a total eclipse happening, like that total shift. And I, to this day, even now, I get goosebumps thinking about it because it was so powerful to even hear. I wasn't even witnessing it. I was just hearing people express their own shock and awe in that moment of awakening, right? So I did note that. Actually, I was like, oh yeah, I need to pay attention to this. Yeah, I think that there's another one coming up in a few years here in the, you know, in the continental U.S., which would be good. But yeah, um, actually, a few years ago, I wrote an article about psychologists who study people who uh, are witnessing solar eclipses and like what is so meaningful about them. And the kind of overall takeaway was that when the sun essentially disappears, it that's like the one constant in everybody's life is like the sun comes up. And then it goes away, daytime, nighttime. And when it's nighttime during daytime, you're just kind of able to see the planet as like a essentially an alien world to see it differently, even though you're in the exact same space you were before, which is kind of a metaphor of a lesson, I guess. But I went to Wyoming for the last eclipse and saw it. And it was it was very, yeah, I fell into that that camp of people who had their minds blown by that. So I would highly recommend it for everyone. Oh, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you for that. We will all make sure to do it, right, listeners? <laughs> no problem. Very easy. Very easy. Yeah. Just a quick trip. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. The book is Astronomical Mindfulness. We can get it anywhere we find books, our local bookstore, Amazon, all the online places. Yes? Yep, that's correct. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Anywhere else you want to point the listener to follow you or Chris or anything like that? 
sure. Well, we have a, a website for the book. It's astromindful.com. Just has some more information about what the exercises are like and stuff. And I think we might expand it to include people's own experiences using the book or, you know, pictures they've drawn from observing and things like that. Um, and on Twitter at Sarah, S-C-O-L-E-S, Sarah, if anyone wants to check that out. And yeah, thank you for having me. I hope that your listeners find it interesting. Awesome. Well, listeners, we have just meditated to the phases of the moon, and now you have an entire book to guide you through some additional astronomical mindfulness exercises. Sarah, thank you again. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.